0: G'day guys, it's great to see you all. Uh, keep your Bibles over there, Romans 8, that's what we're looking at tonight. But now Father we, uh, we pray for us as we turn to your Word, help us to set aside the things that might distract us and instead concentrate on understanding this most wonderful passage of Scripture together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. When you're uh, going through a really tough time, Kenzie knew I was praying for her there, so she wanted to be heard, but uh, when you're going through a really tough time, I don't think there's anything less helpful uh, and perhaps more annoying than someone sharing platitudes with you to try to help you, so do you know what I mean by, by platitudes, uh, it's like when you, you know, you've been hurt by someone and someone thinks they're helping you and they just say, oh well, forgive and forget, it's like, oh well, I might get to that point, but at the moment I'm just struggling a bit, you know, or perhaps what goes around comes around. As if, as if somehow the fact that something bad might happen to the person who's hurt you helps you uh, in this present situation. Or when something horrible happens to you and you're really down and someone says to you, well tomorrow's another day, it's like, yeah but I'm struggling tonight, I'm, I'm not waiting for tomorrow, you know, as if somehow that's going to help you. Often I think we say things like that and Christians do this, we, we, we say these platitudes, these sort of half-truths to, because it helps us cope, rather than actually because we care about the other person. We're we're uncomfortable with other people's pain, uh, and so we feel we've got to say something, and so we we say this sort of a thing. I looked up the definition of a platitude uh, on the online dictionary, and it said, a platitude is a trite, meaningless, or prosaic statement often used as a thought-terminating cliché aimed at quelling social, emotional, or cognitive unease. And I think that is true, those, those little sayings we say, we say them to make ourselves more comfortable rather than to help the other person. Who were the, uh, if you know your Bibles, who were the platitude givers extraordinaire in the Bible? There's some famous ones, it was the three friends of Job. Now the story of Job, Job loses absolutely everything He is sitting there in despair, but his three friends, rather than just coming and sitting with him and saying, this is terrible, and we don't know why it's happened, and we're just going to help you, we're just going to sit with you, they keep trying to give him answers, they keep trying to say to him, you know, oh, this is why it must have happened to you, you must have sinned, Job, it must be your fault, they, they give these sort of half truths, they think they're being theological, but actually, they're just simplistic answers that don't help at all. Today we come to Romans chapter 8 verse 28. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Turn to it now. Romans 8 28 and at first glance it might come across like one of those platitudes. Look with me, verse 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Sadly I have seen Christians abbreviate that verse or sort of cut that verse down and turn it into a platitude, especially when they put it on posters with pictures of puppies and and that sort of thing and and they seem to think it's just saying it will work out in the end for you if you're a Christian Uh, or or God will make good things come out of the bad situation you're you're facing. Whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger is sort of how people take this verse. Uh, They are platitudes but they are not what this verse is saying. This is not some trite verse to throw around to encourage someone who's struggling a bit. This is actually the most profound theological truth that we need to know if we are going to persevere as Christians. This is the most profound truth that you need to know if you are going to keep trusting Jesus through all the pain and all the struggle that will happen in this life. You see, I, I'm, it might be... But it, Troy has said this this chapter might be the the most important chapter in the Bible, remember he said that a couple of weeks ago, he said it might be the, the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, and we've sort of proved that by taking three weeks to look at it, whether it's the greatest chapter in the Bible, whether Troy's right or not, this is certainly one of the most important truths to believe and to hold on to. So let's get into it, this last part, Romans chapter 8. I want to remind us of the message so far. First of all, in case you weren't with us for the first couple of weeks, and then actually we took a week off last week, so it's been a while. Romans 8, okay, it's all about how Christians face suffering. That's what it's all about. It's about how Christians face suffering as we live in this fallen, broken world. So you have to understand the way the Bible tells us that it all fits together. As Christians, we live in, in what we sometimes call the in-between time. So, so as we've learned in Romans, if you trust in Jesus, you have been justified. That means you've been declared innocent by God. Not because you are innocent, not because I am innocent, but because Jesus has paid the price for your sins. That has been the the, the repeated message of the first few chapters of Romans. God has declared you righteous. God has washed you clean. And so, go to chapter 8, verse 1. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says... "Therefore." no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus that's the message of the book of Romans in one verse that is the wonderful news of the gospel there is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus but the thing is Jesus has not returned yet so that is true but Jesus we're still living in this world Jesus hasn't returned yet to bring in his kingdom once and for all and so we still live in these fallen sinful bodies and so we know I'm justified we know I trust in Jesus I'm forgiven I've been washed clean but I still struggle and I still fail and I still sin that's the reality of the Christian life we live in this in between time more than that though we live in this broken world that still bears all the consequences of sin. There is still hurt in our world, there is still pain in our world, there is still suffering in our world and there is still sin in our world and there's still death in our world. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, in one sense it's not an uplifting message, he tells us we will suffer in this life. See, he doesn't want you to be put off, he doesn't want you to think that following Jesus means you can live a life without pain and suffering. Because then when you face pain and suffering, you'll think there's something wrong with Jesus. Jesus. You'll think there's something wrong with your faith. He doesn't paint a rose-coloured picture of what life looks like. He says suffering will be a part of this life until Christ returns. So the question he wants to help us with is, well, then how are you going to persevere in your faith? How are you going to keep trusting Jesus in the face of those struggles, in the face of those pains? And the answer Romans chapter 8 keeps giving us is this. You will keep trusting Jesus if you remember what you're looking forward to. So do you remember verse 18? Go to verse 18 that Troy shared with us a couple of weeks ago. Look will it again. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. He's saying whatever sufferings we face in this life, they are not worth comparing to how wonderful it will be when Christ returns. They will not compare to what you will receive as someone who loves Jesus when he returns. Now, here's the thing. If I say that to you, there is a real danger that it will come across as a platitude, like I was saying before. Because frankly, I have not suffered very much in my life. There are people in our church who have been through suffering I cannot even comprehend. There are people who have been through things I... I can't even begin to understand it. So you might say, oh, you can say that, Phil, but if if you experience what I've experienced, you wouldn't say that. But here's the thing, it's not me saying it. First of all, it's the Word of God. And so it's Jesus who has experienced suffering beyond anything we have ever experienced. But also it's the Apostle Paul, and he knew suffering. If you've read the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in his life had rocks thrown at his head all the time. Basically every town he went into, he got run out of town by people trying to kill him. in one occasion, he had to be lowered in a basket out of a window in the wall because they were trying to kill him. He was totally rejected by his own people. Then even his Christian friends turned on him at different points. He's thrown into jail over and over again just for preaching the gospel and yet he could say, whatever I've suffered, not worth comparing to the glory I will see and know when Christ returns. So his point is, it's worth it. It's worth it. Keep trusting Jesus no matter what happens. And so as we come to this last part of the chapter, we come to the next key point that the Apostle Paul is making for us about how to deal with difficulties in this life, how to deal with suffering. Now it's really important, and so I keep stressing this, he does not offer the hope that suffering will go away in this life. There is a perverted form of the Christian gospel that gets preached, that says, if you believe in Jesus, God will will fix all your problems in this life. That is not the gospel of the Bible. Paul says, your suffering may never end in this life. If you think about it, Paul never got out of prison in Rome. He was put to death in prison in Rome. So, Paul says, your sickness may never be alleviated. He says, that relational issue that you're struggling with may never be resolved. Whatever the suffering, it may not actually finish. Often in God's grace, he answers our prayers and it does end. But he doesn't promise it. And on the other side, God doesn't promise that your career will be fulfilling and that that your goals will be met. He doesn't promise that you will have a charmed life. But what does he promise in verse 28? It's not even that God will make good things happen out of bad things, though he often does. God promises that whatever happens, he is working to bring about the greatest good for you that there could ever be, that's what he promises. He promises that he will bring you to glory. He promises that he will bring you home into his kingdom, that you will not miss out. And that is a far greater promise than any other promise anyone could ever give you. So let's think about this promise together, what I've called the greatest promise, come to verses 28 to 30 now. Now first of all, look at verses 28 to 30, who is the promise to? Do you see it there? It's to those who love God. Now, God does not promise good for people who reject Him. God doesn't promise good for people who ignore Him. You you could cure cancer. You could give all your money to the poor. You, You could be the best person since whoever you think is the best person. If you do not love God, it is all for nothing. And what does that look like? What does it look like to love God? it's someone who listens to him and puts their trust in his son the Lord Jesus and so it's for that person that God makes this promise this is a promise for Christians if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight I want you to become a Christian I want you to put your trust in Jesus so that this promise is for you but if you have not put your trust in Jesus this promise is not for you but it's interesting look there on the one hand he says it's for those who love God which is what we do but then in the same breath, he says, it's for those who are called according to his purpose. This is that great truth of Scripture that you come to understand when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you decided to do that. When you became a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus. But then once you become a Christian, you realize that actually God was drawing you to him. I love how Christopher Ashe puts this in his commentary. It'll come from the screen. Look with me. He says this, he says, the entrance to the Christian life is like an archway. As we approach from the outside, we see the open invitation, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden. But after we enter, we look back and see over the inside, the words chosen from before the foundation of the world. If we go to the next one, both are equally true, all are invited to come, but those who come learn later that they're coming and their subsequent perseverance are entirely by the grace of God. So you need to understand that that is what it is to be a Christian and that is who this promise is for. We love God, we follow Jesus, but that's because God first called us. And so that takes us to the content of this promise. What does God promise us? Basically, He promises us that if He has started His work in you, He is going to finish it. Next to my bed is a pile of about 10 books, sometimes it gets to 20, sometimes it's a bit lower, several of them have a bookmark at various points, sometimes it's at page 5, sometimes page 100, sometimes page 400 if it's a really long book. What that bookmark signifies is the point where I got bored with the book <laughs> or where someone gave me another book that looked a bit more exciting and I started to read that book. And so there's all these books there, when, I was going to say when I clean but truthfully, when Victoria cleans, uh, she'll often pile them up in the hope I'll put them back on the bookshelf and that just starts me reading them again for a few pages and the bookmark moves a little bit. You see, that is not God with you. God is not like that with us. If you are a Christian, God has started a work in you and He promises to finish it. And here's the amazing thing, God actually started that work in you before the creation of the world. Come with me to what we call the golden chain from verse 29. Look with me. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Please follow along with me here and understand everything God has done in you and for you here. It's worth keeping your brain switched on. Look at it there. It says, First of all, God foreknew you. Uh, That doesn't mean he knew about you. It doesn't mean God sort of thought, ah, that guy's going to be the faithful type. I'll choose him. Or he seems like a nice guy when I tell the future. I'll, I'll choose him. That's not what it is. No, God thought you into being. God knew you into being. Before time began, God said, I am going to make Jasper. I'm going to make Phil, I'm going to make whatever your name is. But then it says, look what it says, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Before the creation of the world, God decided, I am going to save that person. He decided, I'm going to give that person my Holy Spirit. He decided, I'm going to make that person one of my children, like Jesus is my child, so I will make that person. Now again, all this happened before time itself and it had nothing to do with us. It's not because God thought you would be a particularly good person, worth saving. No, God decided it, nothing to do with us, just His decision, God's decision. But then, and now we move forward into time and we move forward into our own lifetime, then it says God called you. That doesn't mean God sort of stood on a hillside and said, Phil... Feel you know, and and hoped I'd hear. That's not what it's talking about, it's not that 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 sort of basic hope that that people might hear and respond, this is not the general call that God puts out to anyone and everyone, now this is what we call God's effectual call. God reached in, grabbed your heart, grabbed your mind and dragged you to faith in Jesus. That's the reality of what happens when we become a Christian. Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2 tells us we are dead in our transgressions and sin. It takes God to make us alive, to bring us to faith. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, what does it say next? Look there, it says God justified you. That has been the whole point of the book of Romans. God dealt with your sin. God wiped the slate clean because Jesus paid the price. God declared you innocent. And so the point he's making here is if God has done all of that, if God knew you from before time, if God chose you from before time, if God has called you to faith in Jesus, if God has justified you and paid the price so that your sin can be dealt with, then how on earth could God not finish his work in you? How could God not also glorify you? What that means in the Bible's way of speaking is God will make you perfect to be glorified, is talking about when Christ returns and we're raised with him without sin and without death and without pain and without suffering, raised to live forever with Jesus. Look there again, I think he purposely puts that future hope in the present tense there to make the point, this is a done deal, this is a done deal, nothing can take it away and so I hope you see the point, for God to not finish his work in us it would be like a person, I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy for it, It'd be like a person who, who sort of came up in their mind and dreamed up a wonderful sports car, you know, sort of like Elon Musk sort of, sort of guy, you know, who, who dreams up a wonderful sports car and then they go into their study and they draw up the plans and then they go out and raise the money to make this incredible car and, and then they get it made and it's exactly how they want it to be and then as they're driving it home, one minute from home it runs out of petrol and they say oh that was all for nothing and they leave it on the side of the road no one would do that no one's sane, anyway would they well god will not do that with you god will see his people home and so come back to verse 28 that that is the good that god promises every person who loves jesus see this life might not work out how you wanted it to you may face suffering in this life, you may face pain in this life, you may face loss in this life, your this world dreams and aspirations might not come into being, but keep trusting Jesus. Don't give up on God, because God will finish what he started. And I want to say to you, that is not a platitude, that is the most wonderful truth to hold on to. There is nothing better than what God promises us in Romans 8.28. If you are not gripped by that, If you are not gripped by that, I have nothing more to offer. I've got nothing else. God has nothing more to offer. He is working to bring you to glory. That is the greatest news there is. But now, much more briefly, let's turn to this last wonderful part of the chapter. Turn to verses 31 to 39, which I've called, How Can We Be Sure? Here's one of the amazing things about we sinful human beings. It doesn't matter how clear God is doesn't matter what God does, doesn't matter what God says, we will find ways to doubt God and we will find ways to doubt God's goodness. It started with Adam and Eve, you know how we looked at Genesis 1 to 3 a few weeks ago, remember our studies there, here's Adam and Eve, they are there and they have seen God firsthand make the world. Adam was crafted out of nothing, He, he had God walk with him in the garden And then it only takes a little whisper from the devil and they start doubting if God really loves them. And they start saying, maybe God doesn't have our best interests at heart. And that is the story of every human being since then. It doesn't matter what God does, we human beings can find a way to doubt him. And so what the Apostle Paul does here is, for this last part of Romans 8, he asks this series of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question where you ask, but you're not actually asking for an answer. You, You know the answer. He asks this series of questions, one after the other, each building on the one before and what he's actually trying to do, it's designed to bludgeon you in, in a good way. He's designed to, he actually just wants you to get hit on the head in a nice way, over and over again to get the point do you understand just how secure your future is if you trust in Jesus? So come with me, look at these final verses, look from verse 31. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Do you see the point? If the God who made the universe with a word is for you, who or what else do you have to worry about? Again, I tried to come up with like a, an analogy for this, I thought maybe, if you could say if the President of the United States is for you, then who could be against you? But these days we don't, we seem to not particularly respect the President of the United States very much, whoever it is. If you are best mates at school, with the six foot six rugby captain, what do you have to worry about in the playground? You know, that, that's sort of the, the point of it, except generally the six foot six rugby captain is not the nicest bloke. So the analogies don't work. They don't make the point because we can't comprehend the truth about God that he is all powerful and yet all good. And that's why no analogy works. See, look at verse 32. It says, God did not even spare his own son. But offered him up for us all how will he not also with him grant us everything see what it's saying it's saying if God has already done the most costly loving thing possible to do if God has already loved you by sending his son to die for you to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin how on earth if God has done that how on earth could we ever doubt that he will not finish his work in us How could we ever doubt that God does not have our eternal good in mind? But someone might say, what about my own sin? Someone might say, "I I know that, but I know that I still sin. And so sometimes my own heart makes me ask, can God really love me? Can God really forgive me? Sometimes the devil whispers in my ear, you're not good enough for God, as if you're really a Christian. Well, look at verse 33. It says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. So he's saying if if God has chosen you and God has declared you righteous, right with him, what does it matter what your silly mind says? What what does it matter what the devil says? Like that old song that the Christian kids and the Simpsons used to sing. You know, the one if the if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. That is wonderful theology. (laughs) The Simpsons often had wonderful theology. It's absolutely right. The devil can do nothing. Just tell him to get lost. God is for you. If God says, and he's the one who judges, if God says, I've forgiven you, if God says there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus, who else can accuse you? And more than that, who else do you have in your corner, so to speak? Look at the rest of verse 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God, And intercedes for us. You have Jesus who died for your sin, Jesus who defeated death, he is there in the heavens arguing your case. Who on earth do we possibly have to fear if you have Jesus on your side? So that brings us to the climax of the chapter, the climax of the book of Romans really, come to verse 35 and it says, who or for that matter what can separate us from the love of Christ? It's a serious question. So is there anyone or anything that can separate you from the love of Christ? And so he lists things out. Look there, he says, can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, they're all things Paul faced, by the way. All of those things can hurt you a lot, can't they? They can even take your life away. They can even kill you. But they cannot take away what is most important they cannot take away what God has in store for you beyond this world they cannot separate you from the love of Christ and so we can handle anything this world throws at us look at verse 37 it says no in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us where it says there we are more than victorious literally it's we are super conquerors I like that more I love that word super conquerors Now, it doesn't mean we win fights because we turn the other cheek, remember? No, it means we will persevere. We will keep trusting Jesus. Nothing can take that away. We will keep trusting Jesus. You see, you might think all those things might conspire to destroy faith, but no, the person who knows Jesus, the person who's been chosen by God, can withstand any of those things through faith in Christ. And so we get to the final part, verse 38. It says, For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point of that list is not to be exhaustive. The, the point of that list is not inviting you to think of something is left out that can separate you from the love of God. The point is, whatever you can think of, it can't do it. doesn't matter how low you get. doesn't matter how high you get. doesn't matter how far that way you get. doesn't matter how far that way you get. It doesn't matter whether it's angels and demons or, 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 or earthly authorities. None of them can separate you from the love of God. Death, what do you care? You have to be with Christ forever. Whatever life throws at you, you have Jesus. The devil has got nothing. That's his point. Nothing can separate you from the love of God That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is no platitude, that is the greatest truth anyone can know and so I pray that you know it, that's my prayer for you, my prayer for you is you know that truth and that you cherish it, that you hold on to it, that it gives you what we call as Christians assurance, that you realize God has done it all, I just trust in Jesus and God will see me through. We're pausing here at this point in Romans. We'll come back to chapters 9 to 16 next year. We're going to look at John over the summer. Uh, and I know at different points, even in tonight's passage, Romans has been quite challenging. It's been quite complicated. Uh, but in the end, the message is really, really simple. Keep trusting Jesus. That's the message. There's nothing better. There's no other option. Keep trusting trusting Jesus and the point here is why on earth why on earth would you not keep trusting Jesus if you are persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel we thank you that for those who trust in Jesus there is no condemnation because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. And we thank you that you started this work in us before the creation of the world and you will see it through to completion. And so, Father, whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever difficulty we face in this life, help us to remember you are working for that eternal good and help us to keep trusting our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.